Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers podcast. My name is Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Jonathan Northcroft of the Sunday Times and making his debut on this, our 100th show, Joey Barton, podcaster, radio star, resting footballer. We'll be exploring two familiar themes, leadership and management. So let's start with this week's North London derby. Will both Tottenham and Arsenal have new managers next season? What do you reckon, Johnny? Well... (laughs) It's a big question to start with, Mike. I mean, it's it for for different reasons that 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 might be the case. Uh, opposite reasons, really. You look at Tottenham, who you know will give everything, try everything to keep Pochettino, but are going to face a real difficulty in the summer with Real Madrid in a in a rebuilding phase and and him pretty much top of their list. Um, they might not be the only club looking at Pochettino, but they'll be the biggest and they'll be the have the best chance of getting him. So they face a cha- they face a challenge to, to keep hold of him, whereas Arsenal are in the situation of facing a challenge as to almost how to get rid of Wenger, if I can put it as bluntly as that. Because when you look at what happened last summer, they renewed his contract, I think mostly because Stan Kroenke had the final say and the owner played safe. Behind that, within the club, changes started to take place, led by the chief executive, who's preparing for a future beyond Wenger, um, which now puts Wenger's position in in, in new territory, where he's not fully in control of the club. And they'll be at another crossroads, whether they go that step further and actually get rid of him or not. So Mm. for for two very different reasons, both of those managers could go. Mm. With Wenger, we, we talk a lot about shelf life in football what is the optimal time for a manager to be at a club you know you you look at american football a great coach like bill walsh would say well 10 10 years maximum they stop listening to me what about professional football a lot less than that well i think we've seen this season it can vary from four games (laughs) to to four weeks i think it's you know as a manager I, i would presume it takes three, four, five transfer windows to mould the squad in your, you know, philosophy, whatever it is, the, 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 you know, whether it's a, a, I always believe a team ultimately will reflect the manager's personality after a period of time because, you know, you're seeing with like Sam Allardyce at Everton now, he's got players there that he clearly would never endorse and he's got a process of trying to get some out and trying to get ones that he likes in and then the league position doesn't allow him to get probably his number one target, so he has to compromise. So, in the Premier League now, you just don't get that opportunity. I think you know the likes of Wenger, mm. he has had. He's probably gone through the cycle, got his team, and he's probably at the point of staying at the party too long. I think if you look at the kind of dynastic managers or the dynastic coaches in other sports, whether it be the NFL or uh, say I said Alex Ferguson at Man mm. United. I think what Alex Ferguson did was obviously built multiple teams, but if you notice, he ne- they never changed the manager, but they would always change the first team coach. So whether it be Rennie Mulstein, Archie Knox, Steve McLaren, Carlos Queiroz, mm-hmm. you know Brian Kidd, that would keep the fresh impetus in the group because you know if somebody keeps talking to you all the time, eventually you'd probably uh, drown out mm. the sound. Do players have a sixth sense for a manager's weakness? I think. Human beings just have a sixth sense for each other's weakness. Um, And obviously you go into an alpha male environment like that where you've got a lot of type A personalities who are 
you know, fighting to survive the law of the jungle at times in terms of the next contract or, you know, you're going from being the best thing in the world in one game, you know, six months later, you're the worst player in the world. You know, just look at like a Fernando Torres, for instance. Mm. So players are always fighting to survive. The ecosystem is very fragile or, or so they believe it to be. And, you know, they're always testing each other. You know, you, you, whether it's the game on a Saturday, you're testing your, your direct opponent or, you know, your teammates. And, and if you don't, such is the nature of the beast that generally the minute you show weakness, it's either exploited and somebody's moved on or it's exploited and you have to strengthen that weakness in order to survive. Mm. And players are conscious of what they read in the press mm. or hear on the radio mm. or TV. If you take Pochettino as an example, yeah. we've already talked about the assumption that Real Madrid mm. will look at him in the summer. Yeah. So when they're looking at their contract, you know, an older Varelled or, you know, maybe a, De a Deli Alley who's thinking, well, actually, if he goes to Real Madrid, I might go there as well. Mm. That creates its own tension and its own dynamic, doesn't it? It does. We've seen with Marco Silva at Watford what happens when players get the sense that the manager, the leader, isn't committed to the cause. Um, the leader's got to define the cause. The leader's got to be the most committed to it. And that's a trick that Pochettino's got to, to, to pull off because he's also got to come across to his players as ambitious. Mm. He's got to come across to them as a guy that wants to go to the very top of his profession because that'll bring them with him. But, going, but he's also got to give them the sense that he thinks he can do that at Tottenham, whether that's realistic or not. And, and I mean, Joe will know from a player's point of view how it comes across. But, you know, we're talking about Ferguson who probably is an outlier because he was able to project the sense that the, every year the mission was just as important as it was on day one. Very few managers are able to do that. I think with the Super Bowl last night, I, I don't know much about American football, but I sort of zeroed in on the, the, the comment of Bill Belichick, who you know has already won five Super Bowls um, and was sort of taking responsibility for the defeat and berating himself, saying, I didn't make the right plays, I didn't do that after the career he's had, what that's done is set the mission for next season already. He's already said to his players there, you know, I'm hurting really badly about this and this is down to me. And they'll know that he's, he's going to put them right. I think that's fascinating management for someone of his mm. status. But that's the kind of thing Ferguson did mm. year after year. And, and it's so difficult in any walk of life, I think, for a leader to keep being as intense as he was on day one or show people he's as intense. Mm. Do players lose respect for the manager who blames everyone but himself. Yeah. You know, I think that it's like anything, isn't it? If you've got a friend who blames everything but himself, eventually hmm. you just start thinking, what's he on about? You know, at some point you have to take responsibility for it. And I do understand, look, there's more facets to the game than the manager selecting the team and the players not performing. I think as a group, as a club, you win together, you lose together. And I think at times that can include the supporters who go to the game. You know, I think they're capable of creating a positive or negative atmosphere in which the team can play. I mean, some people are labelling it at West Ham after the weekend that the fans are vicious towards the board and that's creating a kind of nev negative cycle. On the Pochettino one, you know, as, as well as he's done, let, let's mm. not, you know, mess about here. He hasn't won anything. Mm. So to go from Tottenham Hotspur, which I think is a fantastic football club with a great emerging young side, about to move to a new stadium, for me, they've just gone past Arsenal in terms of, you know, the, the, I think they will finish in the top four and mm. get in the Champions League, although it's going to be tight this year, whereas Arsenal, I don't see any hope, again, for not getting in the Champions League unless they win the Europa League. Mm. They've got a really good young manager, looks like the training ground, they spent a load of money on it not long ago. I think it's a club on the up. Flip side of that is Zidane looks like he's going to lose his position at Real Madrid. Mm. You know, you've got to think Pochettino, he's a young emerging manager, in managerial circles, he's not won anything. You know they've only done well in the Champions League in the groups this stages. He's got a tough tie against Juventus mm. coming up, which is not going to be straightforward. For him to think, you know, I'm going to be able to walk in the Real Madrid, dress Real Madrid dressing room in the summer and have superstars who've won multiple European club cups decide, you know, in world football that dominates that Champions League, and you've got a guy who's not won a trophy as a as a manager. Mm. I think it's going to be difficult. I think a more Realistic option for him would be whoever wins the Real Madrid PSG game that's coming up. Hmm. Someone's going to lose the job, Unai hmm. Emery or Zidane. Hmm. I think if it's Zidane that uh, keeps his job, I think Emery could well be replaced by Pochettino, hmm. who is a former PSG player. I think that would be hmm. a natural progression for him. And then if he wins stuff there, 
which he should do at Paris Saint-Germain because they're so dominant, then on to maybe a Real Madrid. Moisey faced that at United, didn't he? Walking in without having won medals and to dress in full of medals. But, I mean, did players look at that? Did, did, did you look at what somebody's actually won before? Well, it's the old phrase, isn't it? Show us your medals. Yeah. But the, 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 I read a really uh, interesting thing about that in terms of the coaching mindset. So it was... You see Mourinho kind of win and goes in, mm. and, it, and it initially was Martin Johnson. So Martin Johnson goes from mm. World Cup winner, captain, iconic figure of the National Rugby Union side. Mm. He gets the England coach's job without any real coaching background, experience. And they talk about the sliding scale. So constantly as a player, as a, as a person, there's a scale of credibility from zero mm. to 100 that everybody's always on. So obviously the more someone tells you the truth, the more they, they improve on the scale. So um, uh, um, um, Arsene Wenger coming from Grandpa Se, for instance, turns up at Arsenal. Nobody really knows much about him outside of Japan and France. He maybe starts at 20 on the scale. Results, player recruitment, the way he communicates, all of a sudden builds a title win inside. He's up to 80, mm -hmm. up to 90, up to 100 on this scale. Now, as time's going on, we'd have to say he's probably sliding down the scale of credibility, whereas a Martin Johnson probably goes in because of his achievements as a player and a person and a captain at uh, 60, 70, 80, every training session, every press. I think, you know, not being unfair mm. to Mark, I think he's a legend of playing, but as a coach, I think he regressed. Mm -hmm. He's seen it with Gary Neville. Mm -hmm. As a player, mm -hmm. goes in as a coach, thinks he's, because of the smoke that's maybe blowing round him. He thinks I can go to a foreign country and be a success. Scale probably goes in every session, can't communicate, can't speak the language, results go against you. Before you know, he's crashed and burned and he's back here with his, his bags um, mm. and no more visits to Valencia. <laughs> <laughs> so we live in a, a harsher world, mm. not just football, in the big picture, and probably the media reflects that. Now, if you take what you're talking about, Arsene Wenger, if an Arsene Wenger came from Japan now, as opposed to in 1996, mm. it would be, who is this bloke? What, you know, this is a joke appointment. Mm. It's a lot harsher and people make assumptions without any knowledge now, don't they? They do. Um, I think it's harsher, but I think you can also win quicker, which we saw with Marco Silva. So although he started with huge questions about him, it didn't take him long, I guess, to use the noise you know, talking about the, the, the media angle, the whatever it is, to his advantage. Very quickly, he was a messiah. So I think, I think managers... A messiah who got him relegated, by the way. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And a messiah who... <laughs> I think did, it shows how quickly you can hijack the system. You can. You know how to work. Play the, that's exactly what it's like. It's playing the system. Marco Silva knew what to do. He, he projected himself brilliantly, you know, cut the right figure in interviews. And I, I think players, modern players, are actually influenced by the media probably more than, more than a previous generation can't yeah. escape it, John. It's yeah. so encompassing of the game and everyone's on phones. There's so much content now that it's difficult yeah. to escape it. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, Eric Black said something from a coach's point of view. You know, Eric Black still does the first team coaching at, at Southampton. And he said younger players in particular are more, they've got more independent ideas about how football should be played, for example. They've grown up with the debates about, I don't know, the, the, the Guardiola style, v the Mourinho style, the Barcelona way and all that sort of stuff. They've got a lot more opinions. So when you're just working them on the training ground, they've got opinions about what, what, what you should be doing with them and how they should be playing within, you know, the, the, this, this sort of lexicon of, of football systems and so on, which again is being influenced by, by all the stuff that's, that's out there. I think it must make leadership even more difficult than it's ever been. I think mm. that's why you need a manager to be a benign dictator, really. <laughs> I don't think democracy works within football clubs. I really, really don't. You look at Pochettino, I think that's mm -hmm. what he is. Everybody knows he's the leader and leadership roles and responsibilities cascade down from it. And mm -hmm. I think in football, when you get a situation which I th feels mm -hmm. happening at Chelsea now where nobody knows yeah. who the leader is anymore. Conte goes in first season, everybody knows who the leader is and everything comes down from that now. Who's, who's signing players? Who's, who's well, we're reaching the end game with, with yeah. Chelsea and Conte. Yeah. I mean, when, when he says, basically, back me or sack me, you know what they're going to do. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and there's, there's a game going on there because if you're, he keeps talking about how long he's got left in his contract, which is another big marker that he wants to get paid in full, doesn't he? He's not mm. going to walk away. And we know there's options for him to go back, back to Italy. 
But from a playing point of view, they'd be looking at those games taking place. And this has happened at Chelsea before. It's happened with Mourinho and, and, and Phyllis Boas. And when the manager ends up at odds with the hierarchy. And I think that's why Chelsea are, are unique among the, the big clubs in that the, the performance can just absolutely crash but then be resurrected again when the next guy comes in. I don't think the, the other leading clubs are quite as volatile, but it comes from that, that sense that comes around every 18 months in the cycle that actually the coach is no longer in charge, and the players see that. See, but I, I, I think that comes from the owner uh -huh. having varied amounts of interest. Really? So I think when the, he appoints a new manager, he kind of hands over. I yeah. trust you, I've, I've made a big play at you, you run the mm -hmm. club. And I think as time goes on, he maybe gets bored, he gets idle thumbs and he starts to take some control back and mm -hmm. communicate maybe with players, whether it's renegotiations. And then all of a sudden he starts to undermine his own mm -hmm. manager. Maybe it's a, a, a cultural thing. Mm -hmm. And then I think that's why it implodes, whether it be mm -hmm. Mourinho, Ancelotti, Gus Hiddink, you know, Scalari, other, whoever's been there. You can't say that they're all short-term managers because at other clubs they've had longer mm -hmm. tenures than mm -hmm. Chelsea. So I, I do think it's... And if you're a multi-billionaire Russian oligarch, <laughs> you know, you, you have probably a certain style of running mm -hmm. your company. Well, well, you're not used to saying please <laughs> or thank you, are you? Really? It's a bit more of a benign dictatorship yeah. or but, probably a dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, with Chelsea, you, know, you always get the sense that it's an intensely political club with an intensely political dressing room. It's anarchy when you get players going round the back door, which mm. by reputation is what goes on at clubs like that. Have you been in those situations before when there's been, you've been probably one of the ones going round the back, back door, haven't you? No, no, I'd go straight through the front door <laughs> and the window. So, yeah. to. Um, so yeah, no, no, no it, it does confuse things because you get a manager who's trying to set a, a disciplinary tone and I've played for a a few clubs where that's happened, one in particular, which I won't name, but everyone will know. <laughs> so he, the manager would be doing one thing, the owner would be doing another thing. So he'd be negotiating with the player on, I've, I've heard it, he's negotiating with the player on a contract, agrees with the with the player that that's the limit it's going to. And then the owner comes in and says, actually, no, 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 we can, we can do this. And all of a sudden, the manager's undermined now. So you need strong leaderships, like anything, it's common sense. You need it in your house, whether it's with your kids, mm -hmm. in terms of if, if, if the kids ask you, can Dad can have a chocolate bar, and your missus says no, and you say yeah, then all of a sudden yeah. there's a conflict, and now the kids are confused because they don't know who. Mm -hmm. You've got to kind of have a, a message that runs throughout to, you know, to, to, to have that discipline, mm -hmm. uh, because I think everybody needs a structure and a discipline. And in football, where there's multi-million pound, mega egos and agents coming in and you're being bombarded by everything. If the leader it doesn't sit at the top and everything cascades down from that, then it's I think it's a huge issue. And I think but on the flip side of that everyone would say, well Wenger is the leader at Arsenal, but and they still have similar problems, but we'd have to say, well is he? Because I think Arsenal's problems have been aligned with the struggles in the boardroom for control. I think when that's come in, I think that's what's muddied well, the waters. Well, I think it's a club that's lost a clearly defined sense of mission. What, what is the mission there? You know, it was a club that went from the mission being being the absolute best in the country, if, if not mm. in Europe, to being a club that was happy to be in the top four. And make money. And make Exactly, make money. And that's happened around the time of the stadium. I think that's when the values started getting diluted. Um, so you can't... You, you, it, maybe it's not even Wenger's fault mm. that the mission's been diluted. But for me, the, the the worst thing that's happened to Arsenal recently, just from a leadership point of view, was Alex Awobi. And not, not not a lot's been made of that. Mm. But I, I could not believe that in that situation where Awobi is, is is supposedly out um, what two thirty in the morning on the you know the day before a game, not 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 two or three days before, but the day before a game, and he's a young player who's still trying to prove himself. That he just stays in the team, and he's still in the team. And, what and are you saying he should have took him out first game back at the Emirates and well, fifty the, lashes or so? Where's the leadership there? He's made a mistake, and he. Do you mean? I, I'm with you. I'm with you, and I've seen the Arsenal kind of legend saying, you know, that wouldn't have happened. That that's probably one of the things that wouldn't have happened. You'd have been disciplined and mm. left out the team and made an example of really. But the modern era, you know, Wenger's man management. Uh, you know. I, Played with lads who were senior mm -hmm. lieutenants in his dressing room, who've gone back, um, and they said, "What the side that was built, title winners? If you look at that Arsenal side, yeah. warriors, yeah. leaders of men in in that group, yeah. 
and he's gone to now where he doesn't like shouting, he doesn't like people raising the voice in the dressing room. So he's gone for a, a different style and I think Arsene's got himself in a position where there's no self-editing, so nobody going, hang on, what yeah. are you doing? I think he's got himself in a position now where he's like, well, I'm going to do this in spite of everybody else. I'm going to do it my way and I'm not going to stop till I do it my way just to prove everybody wrong. But ultimately, he's getting further and further away from what is probably... Mm. I think if he wins the league, he'd quite happily go out on it. Mm. But he's getting further away from that. And now he's at the... the the, the issue, I think, is he's going to stay too long and probably start... He started already to ruin his legacy. Mm. I think the longer he stays, I think the further he could tarnish it. Because mm. he's revolutionary yeah, when he, he came did, in. Yeah, he's he's, an, he's, he's been an enormous figure in the game here. Mm. Enormous figure. Almost like a philosophical opposite of one of his great sparring partners, Jose Mourinho. Mm. Now, we're in, in a week where we're going to remember the 60th anniversary of the Munich mm -hmm. air disaster. A real concentration on, on the traditions that Manchester United stood for, or do they still stand for? Is Mourinho cognizant enough of the great traditions of Manchester United to be accepted as a really good Manchester United manager? Um, <laughs> it's a big philosophical question, but instinctively, it's the answer that you know got got they got told on day one, which is no because he does not stand for the, the, the same football values that, that Manchester United have always stood for. You know, you go back to the, the, the Busby quote about, uh, uh, you know, the, the Man you know, Old Trafford being in the centre of that kind of docking area mm. for the Salford docks and, 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 and the, the guys that were going to watch them were dockyard workers and it, that, that Busby it, quote. He'd logged off at one o'clock. Yeah, yeah. Give, them, give them fantasy on a Saturday afternoon. Give these guys something at the end of their working week to, to embrace. Now that is the opposite to the Jose Mourinho approach to football, which is, which is utilitarian and, and, and it's about results. So I just think that from, from, from day one, there's, a, there's been a, a conflict there. That's not Jose Mourinho's fault, by the way. That, that, he is what he is. He's won so much by being who he is and they hired him. But they, they, I think the they, as in the, the, the club hierarchy, are, are the ones that are guilty of misunderstanding what Manchester United are about. And I think if, if, if Mourinho was playing more Manchester United football, he'd get a lot more slack than he gets. But when results don't go right, because results is really all he's offering them, then there's a, there's a crisis every, every, almost every single time. And it doesn't help when you look out your window and you see yeah. the blue side of Manchester. Exactly. And they're getting results and playing with and a doing, panache and a style. Yeah. I, I can't believe Man United never did everything they possibly could to, to take Guardiola when he knew he was going to leave Bayern Munich and they knew that Absolutely. Fergie had left. They should yeah. have done, because they'd steal a march on everybody. Surely they have, and I play for City, but Man United's an incredible institution of football. They would have the pull and power. Hmm. Maybe it's Guardiola's ultimate challenge to make Manchester City or try and, you know, close that gap as a football club. But you've got knock to knock them off at, their perch, as someone might. I, 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 well, yeah, knock them off the perch. But you would also, on the flip side of that, yeah. the Busby era and entertaining and yeah. Man United's ethos and maybe the the drop off in the seventies and eighties until the Fergie yeah. era of success. Whereas now I go to Old Trafford and I don't see many dock workers from Salford in there. <laughs> no, I, I don't. You know, so people who are turning yeah. up now at Manchester City, a second, third generation, who are expecting yeah. to win, who have grown up with Man United in the late in the nineties and, and mm. the two thousands, winning trophies, and are now turning up saying we're Man United, we mm. want to win. They don't even know anything about Man United's yeah. tradition. So mm. they got a, the court in between catering for that. I mean, Mourinho's come out, I think it's this morning, and said, you know, the, the, about the stat, the fans in the stadium mm. and the noise. Well, yeah. if you watch Man United away, and I think a lot of the away support is Brilliant probably more yeah. more the dock working yeah. generation of yeah. Salford, the hardcore. They sing and they're as good of fans as anyone in the country. You go to Old Trafford mm. and you get the old Prod and Sarney Brigade all coming in mm. for a for a day visit. It's not the same noise. Yeah. Would you have liked to have played for Mourinho? I've had correspondence with Mourinho. I like I like Mourinho. I, I think he knows his strengths and his weaknesses. I think he can be when he's good. He can be yeah. engaging. I think very um, entertaining character. When he gets. Jose against the world, I think he can be difficult, but isn't that all of us? You know, when you're yeah. in a good mood, you're, you're great to get on with and great to socialise with, and when you're in a bad mood, people want to just lock you in the shed and not speak to you, switch the lights off on you. So, you know, 
you can't you can't knock his trophies. He knows how to win, and I agree with John. You know, I think the fact that Pep is winning and doing it well mm. is about to win, doing it with such style. He's making everybody look yeah. inferior. I think one of his challenges is, and this is where the clubs kind of got this mixed identity now. They're still signing him fantasy players. They're still trying to sign those magic players. Yeah, it's Galacticos. Yeah, and he's trying to put them into a Mourinho team. If he was able to just buy Mourinho-style players, I think they'd be more effective. I think United would be closer to City. But he's trying to bring his approach a little bit closer to the identity of the, the club he's working well, for. Well, what difficult. did Man United used to do? They do what Bayern are now doing in the Bundesliga. Yeah. They see what everyone else is doing and they just buy the best players yeah. from the league and weaken the opposition in the, and then strengthen their side. Fergie oversees it. But I think Man United have gone kind of Real Madrid. Yeah, very much so. The old Man United was width, youth, pace, mm. adventure. Yeah. Mm. Not getting too much of that, are you? Yeah, I'm, but... The old Man United, you know, you look back to the sides they've built, but the game's changed, Mike, you know what I mean? You didn't have you didn't have a sovereign wealth fund buying your no. local rivals and saying, tell you what, we'll spend 700 million in the next four windows. And, you know, you didn't have that. You know, you, you were pretty much, if you had your fan base, you know, they would give you the revenue and then you had to win trophies to get further exposure, further revenue. You didn't have these billionaires buying clubs and going out. So Man United are now in a situation where... I actually don't think... Sanchez is a top-quality player, no doubt about it. Any team in the world would mm. probably benefit from having him in and around the team. But I actually don't think he's really for that team right now. Yeah. But they just couldn't afford anybody else That's to get fair. him. So they're like, well, if we're, we've fell behind City and we've probably fell behind you know, Real Madrid and you know, the, the big European superpowers since Fergie left. We're trying to rebuild. So if somebody comes on the market like that, we've got to take him because if we don't get him and they get him, City gets Sanchez, mm. we're even further behind. Mm. So they've got to, they're in, a, they're in an arms mm. race now where they've, because of the financial power of the club, they've got to be seen as hoovering up superstars. Yeah. It was Real Madrid in, with Vigo, with yeah. Zidane. And it, to be honest, it worked for them. Yeah. So I can see it where if you keep outspending people, yeah, yeah. eventually you'll get yeah, success. But, but poor old Pep can't even fill his substitute. <laughs> can he? What did you make of that? I know. Uh, well, uh, yeah, the, 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 this is the one thing, this whole the last couple of weeks, I think the one thing that's tarnishing Pep's season a little bit. Tarnishing is maybe a big word, but it, it has just dampened it just a bit. His behaviour from the point of, of losing Leroy Sane uh, to an injury, fairly short term injury, you know, six weeks or whatever. Immediately then wants Mares for whatever price, 60 million, doesn't get him, and then makes that little statement on, uh, you know, by, by only naming six substitutes. And I was, I was listening to Stephen Gerrard about this, and, and, and I totally agree with him that what he's doing with that kind of indulgent, self indulgent statement is he is denying a young footballer the chance to be on the bench for that game and the chance to enhance his own career and experience. It's probably not going to matter to the game and the result, that, that extra sub, but it's going to matter to one individual. There's symbolism footballer. in it, isn't there? Yeah, no, that's, that's know, you know, I'm, I, Do you think that's a bit... No, I've heard all the, everybody, Gary Neville, Stephen Gerrard, everybody's outraged at it. And listen to Pep's rationale of it. Mm -hmm. Look, there's no doubt there's more subtle undertones to why he didn't do it. But you can only bring three subs on on a Saturday. So realistically, you don't need seven substitutes. No, but, no, but, but it's, take, not, it's not compulsory. You have to yeah. take the young player in, but, give him a taste. Like, what did you feel like when you first sat on the first team bench? Well, I wanted to sit there on merit, thinking I had a, first, a chance to get on the pitch. I didn't want to sit there as mm. a token gesture and think I've been brought here to make the numbers up, because that's a different mindset. If you're going to do that, you might as well get one of the fans out the stadium, out the stand who've paid for a ticket and enhance yeah, his experience. That City youth team's won everything, doesn't it? They can't, well, they, they can't well, be... Well, he did say they've not... got a game on the Friday. I don't want mm. to take one of them out of the team mm. environment when I've got no intention of playing them mm. and waste, take him away from his game. So I can understand the rationale of it. I think everybody's looking for a stick maybe to beat Pep on. Mm. And I, as you know, I like to take sometimes a bit more perspective and sometimes the opposing view from everybody, mm -hmm. which it's easy to say, yeah. you should have put someone on the bench. Listen, if there's somebody there on merit and he's considering bringing them on or he thinks it's going to enhance his okay. development, he's done, I think he's done it with young Phil Foden. I don't think he's averse to doing it. Does Pep make that decision uh, if it hadn't come off the back of the transfer window? Well, it's hypothetical, isn't it? We don't know. We it don't seems know. a coincidence. 
Well, it, it, what's he protesting against? Not having enough well, money to spend. It. He spent seven hundred and thirty-two well, million. Like, you can't protest against yeah. not spending money, John. Yeah. He spent a lot of yeah. it. Well, when we when we sort of wheeled in sticks, and we've got Pep in the vicinity, what about the the Mares situation? There, you've got a player at Leicester who we're told is depressed, certainly isn't turning out for training, or hasn't turned yeah. out for training last week. You know, I was at Leicester on Saturday, and there was a real sense of outrage is too much but there was there were people were affronted by the fact that city came in thinking mm. well okay we're you know we're the biggest club well hang on a second these these guys were champions two seasons ago mm. what do you make of it all yeah i mean Maris is he is stretching what is a really generous sort of amount of love for him he's starting to stretch it among the fan base um and the idea that he's you know he's projecting is that he's he's being kept unfairly prisoner against as well because this brilliant club's come in for him hasn't he done enough to earn the move I sort of, sort of get that in professional terms but Manchester City came in on deadline day for him they didn't come in at the start of the transfer window they came in on deadline day and they also bid about 50% less than Leicester's market value for him, now Leicester might be wrong in their valuation of him of course but they've set a valuation, it's like when you put your house on the market and there's no room for negotiation from a Leicester point of view. City come in on deadline day and it's kind of, we're going to give you 50, well 60% of what you think he's worth and take it or leave it. I don't see that as a, as a huge, terrible injustice for Riyad Mahrez. I see that as entirely logical from Leicester's point of view that they rejected it and he's their best player and the owners love him. I also, to be fair, see it as logical from City's point of view that they make a cheeky bid to see what they can get. So Mahrez has got... He's got grounds for wanting to improve himself, but the way that the specifics of how that deadline day happened means I don't think there's been any injustice done to him. So he's got to get on with it. And and if he if he continues on strike, and I'm not sure if he would be leading it because that's not the type of person he is. Tevez went on strike, different character, same agent by the way. So that's the point I'm trying to make here. If Mares goes on that, he's newly his agent, isn't he? Exactly. Started working together recently. And the Same agent as Coutinho. So is that where the valuations yeah. come? Yeah. And also the thing that concerns me is nobody bids now. Nobody makes a bid yeah. for a player unless they know the player. That everyone's tapped up. Every player's tapped up, whether <laughs> we like it or not. Whether it's not directly or it's indirectly, there's always feelers put out. Would he be interested in coming? So that's probably been... And personal two, terms are usually office. sorted as well. Personal, so that's why they happen so fast. Personal terms yeah. are already done before yeah. you even get in negotiation. And I think that conversation's gone, well, we're going to bid up to X. Yeah. And they've gone, well, OK, that, that should be enough to make the deal happen based on market value. It hasn't been enough. And that's when the toys have come out the pram as a last mm. throw the dice to mm. make that deal happen. Yeah. And when it hasn't, he's backed into a corner. You know, Riyad Mahrez, can he... You know, from, from his point of view, he's won the league for Leicester, won PFA player the year. I mean, how far Leicester are going to finish in the middle of the table this year? They've replaced the manager a couple of times since. You know, he signed a contract. You know, he's probably been waiting for a big club, Champions League club. He's had a taste of it to come back and take him. Um, so you can understand from his point of view, wanting to go and play for City. The argument would be, how many games are going to play for City when everyone's fit? Um, is he going to go and be a space filler or playing in the League Cup? Well, it could happen to him because I don't think he's good enough to start every single week in that City side, not in the vein of form Sane no. and Sterling where I don't see where he fits in. Um, but for his, I think, ego, he needed to take the next career step. You yeah. know, Should they have sold him? Well, I agree with Jonathan. Leicester have got a, you know, based on Coutinho going for 140 yeah. million or Neymar, everybody's setting... Yeah. Their players, well, if Coutinho's worth that, Mahrez has won the league yeah. a couple of years ago, he's won PFA, play. like, Coutinho never done that, so we should be copping at least 100 million for him. So I can understand Leicester going, well, if you don't give us fair market value, we're not yeah. selling them. But I can also understand Mahrez wanting to go, so I don't think that's the end of that, because what happens if players down tools now, players get out, players yeah. hold all, all the power, not the clubs anymore, because Mahrez will just say, fine, I'm not playing, I won't play till the end of the mm. summer. You see me? Um, multiple transfers over the year you know Leicester at some point like the Sanchez at Arsenal is the prime example mm. Wenger's now saying I should have sold him mm. and got 50 million yeah. for him and now I've, I've got you know I should have sold him because the this in uh, in the dressing room all the all the political issues it causes in the dressing room when you get 
uh, a bad egg. Yeah. Mm. I, I would have sold them. What about the application of power, Joe? You know, we, we talk about one of your former clubs, Newcastle. You've got there an owner who's been, is reviled. Doesn't look like he's going to sell. Rafa Benitez is almost a source of hope for the fan base. Do you think Rafa should have been more aggressive, more militant in coming out against Ashley during the window? It's tough. He's an employee, isn't he? So it's tough. Mm -hmm. You know, he'd be in breach of his contract. Obviously, he's got a family to feed. He doesn't want to get the sack and, and you know, nobody wants to get the sack. He also probably feels a responsibility to the club to, to be that, you know, s strong hand at the helm while there's a bit of choppy waters. So... It's it's a tough one. I, I I thought that deal was going to happen. I still think it will happen. You know, usually there's an appetite to 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 do uh, a negotiation. You know, I think there is an appetite to sell. I think actually looks like he's had enough. You know, I think he wants maybe slightly too much in the negotiation, and it looks like there's an appetite to to buy the club. You know, the fans I think need it. I think they they deserve it. You know, they they still sell out the stadium every week. I think I think Rafa would well be well within his right to say enough's enough and I'm, and I'm out of here um, and I can see that happening if if the deal isn't to sell the club isn't concluded by the summer I think he'll stay to the summer keep them up or, or not because they're in a dogfight down there if they stay up I think he might go do you know what That's and Ashley hasn't sold the club I think he'll go do you know what I can't do this any longer I think that is I think that has influenced it the dogfight because if he had made a huge fuss in the, in the transfer window if he'd really pushed Newcastle's league position is so precarious that he can't he can't risk anything affecting mm. the team at this point in time because a few bad weeks could could do for them. So I think that has been part of the calculation. Mm. But yeah, we talked right at the start of the show, Joe, about your podcasting. You got this podcast called The Edge. It's unbelievable, is it? <laughs> Not as good as this one. Best one. Out there. <laughs> this is a, I've heard this is the second best. <laughs> <laughs> um, it starts with uh, you and, and Sean Dyche. Give us an idea of the defining characteristics of, of Dyche. Well, it's tough to, to distill down like that because obviously you spend a lot of time working with someone, and you know, for me, I, as I say, it's got to be up there. And I think this season's proven just his, his qualities as, as a, man, a manager. Certainly in the in the modern game, he's come from. If you'd have said ten years ago, our top two managers, British managers, are going to be or three are going to be uh, Chris Hutton. Sean Dyche and um, Eddie Howe, mm. people have gone, well, what's happened to all the mm. internationals with big level experience? But this is the situation we're in. And, you know, I, th I think when you look at the Burnley group, and I know they get a good result against Man City and, you know, the stale and miss mm. and a little bit of luck goes the way. But when you look at the, the league position over the course of the season, you look at the budget, something has to be going on um, below the surface. And I think the podcast touches on that. In, it kind of shows a, a depth to the way he thinks, to the way he thinks a group should be formulated. But then you look at the influences on his career, you know, whether it was Brian Clough when he's a young boy of Forrest, uh, John Deacon, who spoke, uh, John Duncan, sorry, who he talks about in there, and the managers up and down the pyramid of English mm. football that have influenced them in a positive and negative way. I think this is the the crux of, of our coach instruction now, that we've got to do something to make sure we get these generations mm. of coaches. We don't have an Antonio Conte, for instance, coming in for a year, gone, not, mm. leaving no legacy. We don't have, as we've seen with the English national team, Fabio Capello coming in for a couple of years and then gone. I think we've got to be very, very careful to protect, to protect what is already an endangered species, mm. which, is a, mm. which is the British coaches in this game, because ultimately when the money and everything else goes, these grassroots coaches and these coaches that they then can aspire to up the pyramid the likes of a Sean Dyche, the likes of a Eddie Howe. I mean, we've already lost Gary Neville because he's had his fingers burnt in, in one job. We've got lots of people who will sit on this on this couch as pundits who go, it's too volatile, it's not for me. Top players, top football minds, I would say, but they don't want to do it because of the volatility of the nature of that industry at this moment. So, you know, what what is Dyche? I think the, the best quote I pulled from him, and there's many, many, because mm. obviously... It, it just soaks into your brain after constantly getting them told you know, <laughs> over a period. But he said something in the podcast, which was his minimum, when I was asking what he looks for in a, in a person in, to come in the club or a team player, he says they have to have the minimum requirements being maximum effort. He says after that, yeah, I can work with any, yeah. anything else. Wow. But he, he said, I, I need them to give me 
whatever they've got and you know I can understand people making mistakes he said I can't work with that but what I can't work with is mm. somebody not giving me everything they've got so, I mean, it's, it's a brilliant podcast. I've listened to it, and, and one thing Thanks, that mate. well, there you go, Joe. Didn't have to say that. I wasn't here. Probably. <laughs> I'm genuine. No, no. I mean, but the thing that, that it starts for it starts with you talking to Sean about meeting him at his house, mm. which immediately tells you something about who he is, letting you into his home. Mm. Um, and is that because I'm from? Not you, Paul? not you personally. <laughs> letting a player into his home, and you know, you're no longer his player, but. Oh, the other thing that comes through is, is, is that you still have a relationship with them. So there's a relationship there in the moment you meet him, and there's a relationship that has outlasted your working relationship mm. with them. Well, he talks about that. He talks about that. he talks about you know helping people become yeah. better people, which would help them become better players. You know, showing the players that you actually care about them. And I think when you look back at over over all the good managers, so you know what, what the cycle we're talking about: Fergie, yeah. even Arsene Wenger, you know uh, Brian Clough. Um, Don, Revy, whoever, yeah. whoever you go to, anyone who's had success, you think back to people who've maybe been your editors in yeah. newspapers, the ones who've cared about you, yeah, the ones that you go above and beyond for. Not too many of those about me. <laughs> well, I don't know that industry. People who cared about but you tend right. to get more out of you. And you speak to old Man United players, and, and it's the personal relationship with Fergie mm. that they remember most of all. Yeah, that's amazing. I, I spoke to uh, Paul McGuinness, a very, very yeah. good youth coach. His, his dad, Wolf, took over from, from Wolf Busby. Um, sorry, <laughs> Matt Busby. Um, and he made a point about connectivity and almost like following in the footsteps yeah. that, and this is where maybe Michael Carrick going back into the coaching structure, that's a throwback to the Fergie days, isn't it? Absolutely. That, that, that's the, the passing of the baton, the passing down of values, which, is, which was something that was... Fer, Fergie always wanted to make it even more. He was never satisfied. He wanted to have ex-players in the boardroom. He, you know, he, he, he was always looking for, for ways to, to reinforce that, that legacy. It started when somebody came in the dressing room and the senior pros got a hold of them. You know, I spoke to Rio Ferdinand about the schooling of Ronaldo, which he said a lot of the schooling was actually done by... You know, Paul Scholes and, and Ryan Giggs and him and Gary Neville and before it even got to, to, to Fergie. So that, that's the sort of environment, it's those personal relationships Culture. passing down the line. Culture's and I think that's what that Burnley dressing yeah, room has got. Yeah, and it's taken a bit to build. You know, when the podcast we explored that when he first walks in, because you'd always inherit someone else's group. Mm. And that's why managers... Ultimately, if they're good, they need the time to yeah. develop that culture because it's not something that you can... Some managers I've worked for try to hijack it or there's a shortcut, which usually will be the wheeling and dealing of players because you think, well, actually, if I bring a, a player in from a good culture or a good club, mm. he would instil some of those values here. And if I get enough of them, mm. we'd recreate that culture. And sometimes that can be a... It a takes time, story. doesn't it? Yeah. But ultimately... Yeah. The basics done very well over a, over a sustained period. Now, if you've got the leader changing all the time, that's why you can't. That's why Watford, are, for, for me, yeah. I'm like, how are they staying up? Because they literally change manager <laughs> all the time. But somehow, I think the Pozzo family owning it is what yeah. helps them negate it a little bit because they sign the players by the yeah, look of it yeah, yeah. and they just hire and fire the coach. He's an interchangeable part. Yeah. We'll end with a, a few questions from the listeners and the viewers. Um, start with you, Joe. Um, it's your, your club. Jonathan Allen asks, will Sam Allardyce see out his 18-month contract at Everton? Indeed, should he? I think he should, because I think if you appoint a manager and he's prepared to take that job at that time when Everton were in my dire straits and were going to no doubt be in a relegation battle for the rest of the season, I think the fact that Sam's put his hand up and said, I'll take the job, should allow him to see the contract out. Uh, I don't think it will. I just think, I don't think they ever fancied him. So, you know, I don't think they ever, ever wanted him because we know the Marco Silva story. Mm. I think he was maybe target number one and I think Sam was probably a little bit down the wish list. They end up at Sam. He goes in, turns him round. But the Evertonians expect a style of football. You know, as most football fans do now, what that is, I don't, I don't know, but... When they look at Man City, when they look across the city to Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool, they expect their vibrant attacking brand of football, the school of science, mm. the Alan Ball, you know, Alex mm. Young, mm. Colin Harvey, Howard Kendall, all that kind of you know, ethos that's at Everton. And I think 
they hark back to those days. Now, Sam, no matter what we say, is it's not going to really <laughs> float that boat. It's, it's just not. It's not the way he goes no. about it. Sam prides himself on being defensively solid and structured and keeping clean sheets. I don't think that's happening. You've got the offense of a new stadium in the background. I think that's going to confuse matters. Mm. And my argument was, rationally, if I wanted to buy a house and I was in the market for buying a new house, I've just had to get, get out my old house because it was falling to the ground. There's a Dutch windmill that was, <laughs> the roof was caving in on and I want to buy a new house. And the house I want to buy which was the nice Portuguese mm. villa, was had a tenant and they didn't want to sell, no matter what I offered them. So I ended up going for a nice two up, two down in, 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 in Bolton. In Bolton, <laughs> Dudley. And that's what I'm happy with, that's the lot. And then all of a sudden the Portuguese villa comes back on the market mm. and I've got the financial means to, to buy it, then surely you'd move out of the two up, two down. But in football, you know, yeah. you might have to cop a bit of money on the way out for the agent's fees and, and uh, the compensation. But if that's your dream house, mm. and that's what four months ago you were aspiring to live in for the next four or five years, as soon as it becomes available, surely you've got to take it. All right, well, let's talk about... You don't the... like a good analogy, Mike. Yeah, it's not bad. Well, I'm, gonna, I'm not <laughs> going to extend the analogy. We're going to talk about the modern mansion that is Liverpool. Yes. Uh, or Anfield, anyway, with that new stand. <laughs> it's from Asim Rasib. Does Jonathan think losing Coutinho and not buying a replacement will cost Liverpool a top four place this season? Well, it hasn't enhanced their chances of a top four place, has it? I mean, I, I thought from the start it was a, a mistake in football terms to do it. I mean, we've talked about how difficult it is to keep a player when he wants to, to go. So, OK, that, that, there's that. But selling your best player and, and not replacing him at a precarious point of the season when... Um, you're also a team that's so dependent on or was so dependent on that particular player for a particular thing, you know, set pieces. He was a unique skill set in that Liverpool midfield in terms of being able to keep the ball and, and hold on to it a little bit. Um, if you're going to sell him, you have to replace him. For me, if, if, you, if you really value the rest of that season, um, it's a mistake. But I think it's, it's, it's Jurgen Klopp's gamble. Mm. I know that some Liverpool fans want to sort of pin the blame on FSG. I can understand that. They love Klopp. They don't want him to be blamed for anything, really. Instinctively, they want it to be someone else's fault. But I think it's it's Klopp's decision. He's a long-term thinker, so he's doing it with the idea of the group in mind. He doesn't want Coutinho there if he doesn't want to be there. And he wants to save his money and spend in the in the summer. That's fine, but it doesn't help the rest of this season. See, I, I think when Barca came in in the summer, mm -hmm. I think... Coutinho was promised, look, we'll let you go, yeah. but give us time to replace you. Give us till January or to the summer to replace you. And I think when they came knocking the second time, if you remember when Coutinho, the second mutants of the bid from Barcelona were up, Liverpool had Adam Lallana coming back to fitness. Yeah. They had Mane who was yeah. sitting on the bench and not happy about it. And I think Liverpool thought, do you know what? He was struggling to get mm. the front four in, Firmino, Coutinho, uh, Salah, who was on fire, yeah. and Mane. I think he thought yeah. there'd be more rotation between well, Salah yeah. and Mane. Yeah. It, it, the Ox had come in and they were thinking, where do we get him in the side? Yeah. And I think Lalana coming back to fitness made Liverpool think, do you know what, we can sell him, we might yeah. replace him, but if not, we've got enough yeah. to keep the momentum going. And as that's proven, you can't, you know, no disrespect to any of them, probably yeah. barring Salah, none of them are at the same level to replace yeah. Phil Coutinho. Yeah. Final question, because uh, time's run away with us. Um, it's from Anne-Marie Batson. My question is, West Ham, a club in crisis? Mm -hmm. It's an institution in crisis, isn't it? After, after the Tony Henry um, sacking, fallout, debacle, and that's highlighted what an um, uncomfortable position those fans are in in terms of their their owners and who they think is running the club. There's been another transfer window. They haven't spent the money they wanted. There's the problems over the, the stadium. Um, there's just that unhappiness there among West Ham supporters at, at the direction their club's being led in. And as I say, the Tony Henry um, affair just heightens this sense that we're being run by a bunch of people we don't like. Um, so that that is a crisis when the fans are on one side and, and, and the people in charge of the club are on the other and the players are trying to make it work on the pitch. That is a crisis and it's certainly not going to help 
West Ham's relegation. Do you get a feel for a club like that? I, I actually f feel sorry for the fans in a way because I think there's clear opposition to going into rented accommodation. Mm. Said this morning on the radio, you know, the, they've been there's a big duplex apartment available and it's cheap rent and they've gone in there and they haven't got mm. the furniture. <laughs> yeah. He's off to, again, to by the way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they haven't, mate. They haven't got they've the furniture to do Collins it. The and they, and... The, the people, yeah, they don't want to be in there. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So it looks quite bare. The, the fans have got no unity with it. They know it's... The, the, there's speculation this morning that there's a clause in the contract. I don't know yeah. how true it is that, that. if they go in, they, there's not going to be allowed to be championship football at the stadium. So if they go down, which could happen, I don't mm. think it will, but it could, then they're going to have to find a new ground because one of the clauses in the late Orient bid was they were knocked back because they didn't want mm. lower tier football mm. and they only got it because it was Premier League. So I think it's a mess and uh, uh, they didn't want the David Moyes appointment, yeah. which I think has ultimately turned out to be a decent appointment. It's so, done yeah. well. Uh, Stabilised it on the pitch a little mm. bit, although they've had a bad result at the weekend. But they're talking about getting rid of the... I don't think they're happy with Karen Brady and the, and, and the owners. I think when, he, when she refers to them as customers. Mm. I think that's very, very insulting to die in the wool West Ham fans who've been with that football club for a long period of time. And it doesn't really have an identity, Mike. It doesn't when you talk about West Ham now and they're out at Stratford and it's a lovely stadium, it's a lovely part of the world. But it isn't West Ham. It isn't it isn't yeah. you know, symbolic of that football club. And I think going to this stadium the last couple of years, I think they've almost lost their identity a little bit, on and off the pitch. Well the club's in a mess from top to bottom. For once that's not the fault of the manager. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 